one of the ways that the New Testament describes Jesus, it's in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. But John, in, in talking about Jesus, says that he was somebody who was full of grace and truth. It says the, the law came through Moses, but Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, when we see words like that in the Bible, we also want to be careful that we try to define those words the way the Bible would define them. So we don't see that and say, well, I think grace is this, and so that must be what Jesus is like. Or I think truth is this, and so that's what Jesus was like. Uh, When the Bible uses those terms, it also, throughout all of its uh, various stories throughout history, tells us what grace is and tells us what truth is that Jesus most perfectly embodies. And we're in actually an Old Testament story But what we're learning about through this story is all about what grace is. And and this would have been for everybody in Jesus' day when he would have come on the scene, they would have known so much more information than we know or have, have in our own minds that when somebody like John would say, now this Jesus, he is full of this grace and this truth that certain stories and memories would have rung in their mind. And and that's what we're doing. We're looking back at some of these older stories that would have been familiar to people in Jesus' day to see what is grace all about, this thing that Jesus himself is full of. And today's message is is all about that. And but if you as you follow along when we read through it, you'll notice the word grace is not in there. And that can frustrate some of us when we're trying to do a, a homework assignment and somebody's asked us to do a, a research on grace and we just, we look up the word and we look forever the word is and that's how we try to find it. But the Bible doesn't quite work like that. It's not a dictionary where you just look up the one word that you're interested in and then you'll find everything that you need to know. But you can't explain the story that we're about to read today apart from grace. You, you just can't make sense of it. You can't fill in any of the gaps apart from God's grace. It just permeates it all the way through. And so we're going back into the book of Genesis in the story of a a young man named Joseph and his family and all that goes on in between them. And so just real quick, if you haven't been with us for this series, where we're at is that Joseph was somebody who had 11 brothers and he was betrayed by 10 of them at the age of 17 and he was sold into slavery. They just wanted to get rid of him. They could care less if he lived or he died. They just wanted him gone. And through a variety of events, 20 years later, they actually end up face to face. Joseph is face to face with the very 10 brothers that betrayed him and wished nothing but harm upon him. And the last time, two weeks ago, when we were in Genesis, Joseph had finally revealed himself to them and said, I am the guy that you sold into slavery. I didn't die when I got to Egypt. And not only had he survived and had he lived, but he'd actually risen to so much authority that he basically only the Pharaoh had more authority than him. He was the second in command of all of Egypt. And so that's where our story picks up in Genesis chapter 45. And I am, if you will, figuratively rewinding the tape. We're actually going to pick this up at the end of 45 and then continue on to 46. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. It's on page 39, and we're going to begin reading in verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, 
and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent away, he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. And so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And then he said, I am God. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they'd gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And now I'll encourage you to skip over to verse 28, because in between is a bunch of names I don't know how to pronounce. In verse 28, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of the livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And that's where we're going to stop for today. I just want to highlight in our time together, you'll see the title of the message is 
all of grace, that this whole story can only be understood and explained in terms of grace. And so it's through the details of this story that we get just a much more robust definition than than a dictionary ever could. The first thing to say about grace that we saw in this story is that grace provides. It's quite an amazing thing that Joseph, when he reveals himself to his brothers, and he has all the authority to do whatever he wanted to do, he could have said to them, you know, 20 years ago, you did something horrible to me, but God has done so much for me since then, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to punish you for what you did. But I'm also not going to help you. I'm not going to hold it against you. But don't ask me for any help now. And that alone would have been crazy. It would have been like, you could punish them. You have the authority, if you wanted, to punish them. But that isn't what Joseph does. He has that authority. He says to them, not only am I willing to not punish you, I'll give you enough for what you need to go back to our father. And he gives them. I mean, it lists all of it. The, the animals that he gives, the food that he gives, he provides all of those things for them. And that alone would have been amazing. He said, they don't deserve that. that. That you would give for them what they need for the journey and what their father needs. But actually what he gives is he gives them enough so that they can make a return trip to Egypt because what he wants to do is provide for them for the rest of their lives. Not only are you not punishing them, not only are you not just giving them enough to get by but they'll be away from you, you want to bring them back here so that you can make sure that they are provided for for the rest of their lives? How do you explain that except that he is being gracious to them? He's treating them better than they deserve. They don't deserve that. They deserve to be punished. And here, his compassion for them is evidenced by the provision that he makes for them. His compassion is seen in his provision. He is giving them everything that they need. And he actually tells them, we didn't read it, it was a couple verses before where we picked up the story. But he says, there's going to be about five more years of this famine. So come here. And I'm not only going to take care of you during these five more years of famine, but I will take care of you for as long as you need help and support. I am in command of all of the resources of Egypt. And I'm making them available to you for as long as you need it. That's a picture of grace. That's what God does for us. That is what is so amazing about the gospel. It's not simply God saying, I will forgive you for everything wrong you've done in the past. But in the gospel, through the blood of Jesus, he says to us, and in that, I have everything you need for everything that you will face in your future. I have not just what you need so that your past sins can be forgiven, but I have everything that you will need forever to still be forgiven. I can secure your past and your future. That's amazing. Grace provides these things. The second one 
is that grace reveals. It's only in this kind of environment, really believing that that Joseph has chosen to be gracious to them, that they can now go home and actually tell the truth to their father. I mean, imagine it. There was no way for them to go home and tell Jacob that Joseph was still alive without admitting what they had done wrong. There was no way that they could share the good news without also sharing the bad news, which was that when they came home 20 years earlier with Joseph's coat torn up and dipped in blood, that they were lying to their father. And that for 20 years, they made him think that his son was dead. It says in in the section of verses 25 to 28 and 45 that when they came and they told him the news, how did Jacob initially respond? It says in verse 26, his heart became numb. What do you mean he's still alive? Not even able to process that. What are, you, what are you talking about? He's still alive. And it's only when he hears them explain all of the words of Joseph. Well, what were the words of Joseph? Well, just the chapter before we get them. Joseph says, you sold me into slavery and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Jacob has to process this. You did what? 20 years ago? Yeah, Joseph said, when you sold me into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it. You did what? It wasn't possible for them to share the good news that he was alive without also sharing the news that they were the ones who had sold their brother into slavery. If you'll look in the section that we skipped over, in verse 12, when it lists all the sons of the sons, it says in verse 12, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, and then there's this note, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. So there were two sons of Judah that don't make this trip to Egypt. They had already been born, and we don't know how old they were, but they had died. So now picture it. Here's Judah. He comes home from this trip. He has adult children. And they find out that their uncle is still alive. Uncle Joseph is still alive? What do you mean he's still alive? I thought he was dead. And Judah has to explain to his other sons who are still alive. He has to just come clean. You say, you know how your brothers are no longer with us? And the absolute pain and heartache that that creates for all of us as a family? You know that pain, right? Yeah. For 20 years, I made my father feel that pain. For 20 years, I lied to him. All he wanted was to be with his son. And his son was alive. 
that's what I did. You did what, Dad? Yeah, that's what I did. Okay, so what, in what environment could somebody come that clean? Just be that brutally honest about his past. Only in an environment of grace. Only someone who believes that all of his sins have been forgiven and dealt with can actually be honest about the sins that he or she has committed. Grace reveals. It it invites us to just speak truthfully about what we've done. Some of the ways that we try to get people to be as honest as possible, and you might know this in a situation if you've been about in a store and and you're with someone who's small and and two of them have wandered off and and one of them's gone and the other one finally comes back and, and they're scared to death and you have to say to them, look, don't worry about what's gonna happen, but I need to know the truth. I need you to tell me everything. You cannot lie. You cannot be worried about whether or not you're gonna be punished because I need to know exactly what happened so that we can find so-and-so. The only way you draw it out of them is in that assurance. Don't think about how you're gonna be punished because I need you to be brutally honest. You can't sugarcoat anything so that you get in any less trouble. But here in this environment, it is because they have already met the person that they've offended, that they've sinned against the most, and he has already been gracious to them, that they can come home and they can be completely honest. It's only in an environment of grace that we can tell the truth about ourselves. And then this explains why grace compels So first, grace provides, then grace reveals, and then in verses one through four, we read of grace compelling. See, the the, the whole lens, the whole focus of the story shifts now from Joseph to Jacob, because Jacob could have had his own reaction, right? He could have had his own issue with his sons. So I don't care if Joseph forgave you. What you, you, you did something to him, but you also did something to me. But that isn't what we read about. It says that his spirit revives. He sees all the provision that's been made. He gathers all of the family together. He doesn't say, okay, there's enough for me to go, and me, maybe me and Benjamin are gonna go, and the rest of you get to stay here and, and think about what you've done. That isn't Jacob's response. He gathers them all together, everyone that is alive. And he's on the journey, and it says that in Beersheba, which is the southern part of the northern kingdom, they would say in Israel from Dan to Beersheba, like we might say from Maine to Florida. Florida is Beersheba. They're on their way towards Egypt. He's just on his way. And in the chronology of the Bible, this is hundreds of years before Moses has come, before there's a 10 commandments that are given that says, you're supposed to worship me and this is how you're supposed to worship me. And we get this event that Jacob has to stop on the way and worship. He has to stop and just make a sacrifice. 
believing that the provision is there, believing that there will be good to take care of him for the rest of his life and all of his family, he can, on the way, make a sacrifice, which meant letting go of some of his material things, killing some of the animals that he would have been dependent upon. And he has to stop and worship God because God has been so gracious to his family. See, when we understand God's grace, nobody has to tell us to worship. We don't have to be commanded to worship. We are internally compelled to worship. What else can we do? And you just have to imagine him sitting there saying, as he's making the sacrifice, God, why why are you being so gracious to us? We are a messed up family. I was at one point in time willing to lie to my brother and lie to my own father so that I could get the inheritance. And here are my sons willing to betray their own brother and lie to their own father so that they could get the inheritance. What are you picking us for? Why in the world did you choose us? Why are you willing to forgive our sins? We don't have it all together. We are about as bad of a picture that could be painted of what a human family should look like. But oh my goodness, we're still here. You've been gracious to us. You've provided everything that we need. You've been willing to forgive us. And so he has to stop. He's compelled to stop. It's the only appropriate response to grace is to worship God and thank him. Because it's not appropriate to stop and all of a sudden start congratulating yourself. Well, you know, this is because I I did this good deed four years ago and, and God's doing this for me now because I made this right choice over here. No, 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 it's... It is being just stopped in your tracks and saying, if the way to explain this is by my choices, then I'm dead twice already. I've chosen not to follow God more than I've chosen to follow him. My family has chosen to dishonor him more than they've chosen to honor him. He is doing this in spite of our choices. And it doesn't make any sense. That's why it's called grace. It's not a reward for anything that they've done. And then God speaks to him in verse two as he's making this sacrifice. And it says, sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. He's in the very place that his father Isaac had made a sacrifice just a few chapters earlier. And when God spoke to Isaac, now God speaks to his son Jacob and says, Jacob, here I am. I am God. And in that is this declaration, I am God and I can do whatever I want to do. And if I want to forgive you, and if I want to bless you, and if I want to be gracious to you, there is nobody who can stop me. That's awesome. There is nobody that can change his mind when he says, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to provide for everything that you need. I am going to forgive all of the sins that you commit. 
the only response is worship. And he promises, he says, I'm going to be there. I'm going to go with you. Don't be afraid when you go down into Egypt. I'm, when you go, there I will make you into a great nation. And that's what unfolds throughout the rest of our Old Testament is the willingness of God unconditionally to make a people for himself simply because he has promised that he would. And nothing knocks him off track. Nothing deviates him from his plan. And so Jacob brings all of his family with him. And so this last point, that grace unites Grace provides, grace reveals, it compels, and lastly, it unites. First here, Jacob is united again in this prayer, in this vision with his heavenly father, and he hears again, look, I'm with you, and I'll always be with you. He's united to his maker. He is united with his entire family. They're all together. And then when Joseph finally, they get to meet together in verses 26 and on, it says Joseph prepares his chariot in verse 29. He comes up to Israel to meet him. And it says that they present, he presented himself and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. 20 years father and son had not seen each other. And here they are because of God's grace to them, able to enjoy this time together. And they have wept a good while. Just wonder if you've wept over God's grace. Of what God has done for you in spite of your choices, in spite of your behavior, in spite of your actions, that he would choose to be gracious. If that ever has moved you to this point, it's an indication of how well you and I understand it. That if we're never moved by it, some of us, we need to be away from people to let our emotions free, and that's fine. But if it's, if it's, if it's never been that you've been overwhelmed by the fact that God has made you a Christian, then you might want to consider the extent to which you understand God's grace. Because it should move you that he has treated you and I such. It even gives then Jacob and his family the capacity to live now in Egypt. And that's what verses, in, we didn't read it, but in chapter 47, 1 through 12, we got the plan at the end of 46, but at the beginning of 47, the, the family follows the plan. They end up in Goshen. Jacob himself appears before Pharaoh and basically gets the blessing of Pharaoh himself to live in the land of Goshen and that everything his family needs, just as Joseph has said, will be taken care of. And so there's this uniting power of grace between Jacob and his heavenly father, between them as a family, and then even between them and with outsiders that should otherwise not necessarily have good relationships with them. This is what grace does. And so when our Bibles say that Jesus was full of grace and truth, these are the kind of things that need to come into our mind when we think about what Jesus has done for us 
and what his grace means. I want to end now by looking at this story through the lens of another person not mentioned. Partly in honor of Mother's Day, I just wanted to say, you know, who's the mother behind this story? And her name is Rachel. She's not mentioned at this point because at this point in the story, she's no longer alive. As I was thinking about Rachel and her story, she had such a breadth of experience for one individual person. Rachel is not in the Bible the living example of Proverbs 31. So when you read Proverbs 31 and it talks about a virtuous woman and then you look at different lives in the Bible and say, who did that? Rachel is not the example of it. And the Bible reveals at plenty of points her own struggles with sin. But think about it. As an individual, she knew what it was like to want to be married but not able to be married. She knew what it was like to actually know who she wanted to be married to and watch somebody else marry him. She knew what it was like to get married. She knew what it was like in marriage to feel estranged from her husband. And she knew what it was like in marriage to enjoy her husband. She knew what it was like to want to have kids and not be able to. And she knew what it was like to celebrate having a child. And then she knew what it was like to die giving birth to a child. And the very last recorded event of her life is when she's giving birth to Benjamin, she herself realizes that she's not going to survive this. And she names him a name that Jacob changes. She names him Ben-Onai, which means the child of my sorrow. And Jacob says, no, we're going to call him Benjamin after she's gone. And so we now know him forever as Benjamin. But it's her story that later in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, when Jeremiah is thinking, who in our history as a people just represents pain and sorrow and all of sometimes the tragedies that life can bring, he thinks of Rachel. And in Jeremiah 31, he says that there is a voice crying in Ramah. I'll encourage you to go to Jeremiah 31 to see this. And he again talks about Rachel. This is in verse 15 of Jeremiah 31. This is on page 659. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. This is the birthplace where Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children and she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So what Jeremiah is doing here is he's taking her experience and looking out on the destruction of Jerusalem and seeing all of these people suffering and he says, it's like you can hear Rachel crying again, all over again in what they're experiencing in their own day. But this is what he says in verse 16. This is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping 
and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. See what this promise is? This is a promise by God that when all of your labors have been exhausted, Rachel, and you're not even around anymore, you can't do anything even if you wanted to do it. But if you believe in me, I can bring them back. I can do what you cannot do. And that's the good news for every one of us. And even those of you that today, this is a celebration for you of what God has done in making you a mom to say, I don't have to be a perfect one. I can be honest that I'm a sinner. Yes, why? Because your hope is the same as Rachel's, that there is a God who makes up for all of our mistakes and all of our failures, and you do not have to be the living example of Proverbs 31. There's a better story that the Bible tells. And it is the story that God himself can do what we cannot do. That he can bring together and unite families in ways that we never can. And so then when the gospel writer in Matthew chapter 2, when Matthew is looking at the suffering of the people that is happening around the time of Jesus, he quotes Jeremiah And he quotes this specific verse and says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. It is the pattern of the New Testament when they're quoting an Old Testament verse to not quote it at length, but just to sort of begin it. And so he begins it. This is the voice crying. And as his gospel unfolds, he then tells the story of Jesus who can say to every Rachel out there, weep no more. I can do what you cannot do. I can, by my grace, make provisions for all of your needs and forgive all of your sins. And when I do that, no one can stop me. Let's pray. We do confess that you are Lord of lords. You are King of kings. You are mighty God over everything. You are Emmanuel. You are the great I am. You are the Prince of Peace. You are the Lamb. You are the living God. You are our saving grace. And you will reign forever. You are the Ancient of Days. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. You alone are our Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, and Friend. And you are our Prince of Peace. And we pray that through your Spirit you would give us the ability to live our lives for you. Amen.